Well, Sabbath greetings, brethren. Welcome to another Sabbath service from the Burlington, Ontario congregation. Hopefully you're hearing the piano clearly and you're also hearing my voice. Happy Sabbath, everyone. Thanks so much, Becca, for the confirmation. Thank you, Sister Becca. And just see who's here. Andrew, greetings. Beautiful jewelry. Sister Becca, VIP, Denny, Brother Mark, Pastor Murray, P. Shotux. RJLCW Sabbath Keeper Seaweed. At least those are logged in, and those of you who are joining us but not logged in are joining us uh, via YouTube or Facebook. Greetings, Sabbath blessings to you. We'll begin shortly. Good Sabbath afternoon, brothers and sisters from around the world, and those of you locally here in the Burlington congregation, welcome everybody to the uh, our Sabbath service here on this beautiful Sabbath day in the first Sabbath of the month of July. Hard to believe the uh, calendar year is is half over here in 2020. It certainly has been a an eventful first half. Who knows what the second half will bring? Um, it is the on God's calendar though. It is the fourth month and uh, the twelfth day of the fourth month. We have. A uh, little over two and a half months until the Feast of Trumpets, 77 days to be precise. Certainly welcome everyone who are joining us here, here in the Burlington, uh, Ontario, Canada congregation. We are not yet able to meet uh, in person. We have not been given that um, that uh, release yet. To to uh, The restrictions have not been loosened for enough yet for us to do so. Many of our other brothers and sisters, including Ottawa, Kawartha, Kitchener, London, are able to meet as are some of you in the United States. We certainly welcome you to our uh, service here this afternoon. We'll begin here and after that welcome with the opening prayer. It will be given to us by one of our deacons who you've heard give uh, messages here on this uh, service uh, many times, our deacon, uh, Brother Jan Kowalczyk, for the opening prayer. <laughs> happy Sabbath to all of you, especially to all of you for watching us from the States. Uh, happy 4th of July. Just please bow your heads. Father, great God, Lord, Lord Almighty, one more time, Father, we come before you on your Sabbath day. Sabbath day, Father, that you gave us right back at your creation, Father, just to remind us who you really are. Who are, who is our boss and who is the creator of everything, Father? And we're so grateful, we're so appreciating, Father, this sign, this day, that such a meaningful day, Father. And as we come together, Father, today, on this day, on your Sabbath day, Father, we ask you that you will bless us with your Holy Spirit. So we'll be, so we'll be able not just to hear the message that we preach to us to today, but that, Father, this Holy Spirit open our mind, our hearts, and truly engrave this message on our inward parts. So we will be just able to go out and not just to memorize it, but we we'll just actually go go and live it by it. And Father, at the same time, we ask for the blessings for all the ministry, all the minister that through this difficult time 
preached to us, many times not easy messages, but a very difficult message, Father, that some of us may even get offended, Father, but that's the purpose and role of the ministry, not just to make our us all of us feel good, but to challenge us and to hold us accountable to the word of God, Father. So one more time, Father, we ask for the blessings on the speaker today and the blessings for all the hearers, no matter where we may be, Father, that at the end of this day, not just this day, Sabbath day, but the end of all of things, Father, we bring you great honor and glory to your name. So, Father, thank you one more time for the privilege and this great opportunity, Father. We ask you all these things in other name, in the name of our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, uh, Brother Jan, for that uh, opening prayer. And it certainly is a privilege to be able to come together, even through the use of technology here, to worship God. We certainly have an opportunity now, after uh, worshiping him in prayer, to begin uh, to worship him in song. We, the first hymn, uh, the, the opening hymn here, will be on page 115 in your hymn books. Uh, but due to, if you don't have your hymn books, don't worry, the words are about to be posted on your screen. The opening hymn will be uh, from page 115, Come, Thou Long-Expected Jesus, page
Thank you, brethren, for helping us sing praises to God with that wonderful hymn. And we do uh, thank our sister Jennifer Davis for her consistent uh, uh, work with the hymn playing over the last number of weeks that we've that we've been together uh, over the Internet. So thank you, sister, for that as well. We now come to the scripture reading. Scripture reading will be from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18, verses 1 through 9. And we welcome our brother from the, again, from the Burlington congregation, uh, Daniel Kowalczyk, to bring us the scripture reading today. Ezekiel 18, 1 through 9. Good afternoon, brethren. Uh, the scripture reading today, as mentioned, is from Ezekiel 18, 1 to 9. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father, as well as the soul of the son, is mine. The soul whose sin shall die, but if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, If he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry, and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not exacted usury, nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity, and executed true judgment between man and man, if he has walked in my statues, and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just, he shall surely live, says the Lord God. Amen. Thank you, Daniel. Appreciate your reading that. What a powerful, powerful scripture that was. You just have a few announcements before we get to another hymn, and it's relative to some uh, Bible studies that are coming up, some online Bible studies. After a two-week hiatus, the Wednesday evening Bible study beginning at 7.30 Eastern or 6.30 Central on this very network, cgi.churchonline.org, will resume this coming Wednesday, July 8th. We will be in the book of Judges still, and we will pick the uh, story up in chapter 11 with the story of Jephthah. And following that study, uh, we will have a uh, live Q&A between Pastor Adrian and myself. Uh, Further along in the week, on July 10th, Friday evening, beginning at 8.30 p.m., that's 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 7.30 Central, will be the second in the interactive studies by Elder Mike James. He will be continuing his uh, look into the question, where are the dead? Uh, if you have, if you were already a part of that first one a few, about a month ago, uh, you, will, you will have already been on his distribution list to receive the link to go to meeting. If you aren't and you would like to be on that distribution list and receive that link that he will send out on Friday afternoon, please email him at mhjames, that's mhjames8043, mhjames8043 at yahoo.com and he will uh, put you on that list for and you only need to be put on the list once and then you will be received that link in subsequent weeks going forward and then finally the third study that is coming up in the month of july will be on july 24th two weeks from this coming friday and it will be an interactive study conducted by elders mike james jeff reed and myself and it'll be for the infuse group our young adults uh, 18 to 30 married and unmarried and we will handle the, the, the topic of, of how to, how to uh, interpret and what is going on at, the, at this time uh, through the, all of the, the, uh, through all of the uh, 
COVID and, and uh, rioting and all, all of the incidents that have been happening in the first half of 2020, how to make sense of all of that. So we're looking forward to having that uh, group discussion on that Sabbath, that Friday evening as well, July 24th. That will be at 8 p.m., not 8.30, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Uh, Central. And watch for uh, the announcements to uh, for that go to meeting link. We'll make sure that we get those out. So, lots of opportunities to have the to have uh, various studies on the Word of God, and uh, it is uh, especially with all that we see going on around us. It is our standard. It is our our rock, and it is what we uh, it is what we can count on as God's Word. And we're looking forward to those studies that are coming up. Uh, that's the end for the announcements here on this uh, particular Sabbath. We will now have one more hymn before we get into the uh, main message, which will be given to us immediately following this hymn. The main message will be by Pastor Adrian Davis. It will be part two. He will be concluding a message he began last week entitled Come Now and Let Us Reason Together by Pastor Adrian Davis. But before that, we will sing page 196. The words again will be broadcast on your screen, trust and obey, and then immediately following that, today's sermon.
Well, greetings, brethren, and welcome to another Sabbath service. As uh, Pastor Murray mentioned, this is now part two of the message that I began. Uh, I don't even remember when I gave the, the last, I guess it was last week I gave it. Just so much is happening uh, from day to day. Come now and let us reason together. And this was in response to a fairly lengthy letter that I received from a sister in the faith. And just going through it and being able to sort of categorize what her concerns were into three categories. But it was really a follow-up. Or that letter was in response to a message that I gave maybe a month ago. Will you plead for Baal? And that sermon was actually in response to a question that was posted by one of our brothers in the faith on the Slack channel with all of the riots that were going on. And it was a very insightful question. And the question was, what should be the Christian response to what we see happening? And so there was some back and forth on the Slack channel. And I thought as an elder, I should weigh in. Uh, but it was, it was too much to just weigh in on Slack. I really thought this needs treatment. And so I gave my response in the sermon, Will You Plead for Baal? Uh, so since that, uh, there has been tremendous support. And I really have to say to you, brethren, that have reached out to me, so many of you, uh, offering your support. And not just, hey, great sermon, but insightful support. Support that tells me very clearly the brethren who are filled with the Spirit are getting this clearly. Uh, the rest of us, I think we need to really be drawing on the Word of God. And that, that's my plea. I, I'm not here to provoke. Uh, I'm here really to uh, encourage you, exhort you to the Word of God. And so as a response to that message, so the question was asked, you know, what should be the Christian response? When I responded what I thought, I was then accused of being part of the problem and creating division. And I have to say, no, we're not creating division. Division is there. Division is in the body. We're shining a spotlight on it and saying, uh-oh, I think we have, we, we have a problem here, and we cannot go forward and paper over these cracks that will lead to disaster. So I began my message, come now and let us reason together. And I actually said, let's, I want to start a conversation when I, when I started out, will you plead for a Baal? And, and then I, I want just to encourage us, like, let's, let's talk. Can we reason? And I began that message with the uh, website HackerOne. And, and, and the story that Starbucks, when, when, when an ethical hacker reached out to them to say, I, I'm loading up your card, and it's unlimited. I can have as much of your merchandise as I like because I've hacked your site. They were furious, and they wanted to sue him and destroy him. Fast forward a couple of years. They are now a big customer of HackerOne, and they pay significant money to ethical hackers who, who are capable enough to hack their site and show them where the vulnerabilities are. And not that long ago, here in Canada, we had uh, a concern um, with an organization, I'm not sure if you guys remember this, uh, but it was uh, Life Labs, and, and they were hacked. And they deal with people's blood results. If you go and get blood results and your health is there, maybe you have, God forbid, you have a very serious disease that you wouldn't want people to know. Well, they were hacked, 15 million people, health, health records and blood results, were exposed, and, and, and the government came down very hard on them and said that they were uh, negligent. Well, you know, these companies that now sign up to HackerOne, 
to say, show us where we have cracks. They do this for a perishable crown. <laughs> they do this for physical wealth. Brethren, brethren, we are in pursuit of eternal glory. We are in pursuit of eternal fellowship with God. And God himself says, you know, the children of this world are wiser in their generation than the children of light. We need to be wise, brethren. And I want to ask you the question that Paul asked the Galatians, for those of you who are intensely opposing my message. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? I'm not sugarcoating, brethren. I'm giving you the word of God, and I'm, I'm pleading with you. I'm appealing to you to begin a conversation. And, that, you know, a lot of support. And, and one brother in particular reached out to me a couple of times. He reached out to me by phone, and we talked. And he reached out to me by email with very constructive feedback. I wonder to say I appreciate that. And he said, you know, what, part of his feedback was, Adrian, you come across very strong. And uh, people uh, are, are offended by your uh, intensity. Well, you know, let me apologize for my intensity. I, I'm wired a certain way. So I'm going to apologize uh, for my intensity as a, as a, as a human being that I'm just cut a certain way, I'm cut from a certain cloth. Um, but I'm not going to apologize for my intensity for the word of God. The, the stakes could not be higher. And, and in case you missed it with will you plead for Baal, and in case you missed it with part one of come now and let us reason together, let me make it crystal before I begin part two of come now and let us reason together. The stakes could not higher. We are in the process of entering eternal life. And this doctrine that has now infiltrated the church, I'm, I'm telling you, brethren, I'm pleading with you, the stakes could not be higher. Some of us are going to be thrown into the lake of fire over this doctrine. That if we embrace this doctrine, if we make this doctrine a part of our conduct, we will be rejected by God and thrown into the lake of fire. And so if I come across as intense, there is urgency, brother. The stakes cannot be higher. Have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So, so I'm appealing to you, brethren, um, forbear one another. Forbear me from my personality. Uh, I, I have a personality. I'm cut from a certain cloth. Uh, so forbear me for that. But please, don't, don't allow the devil to make you believe that I'm trying to hurt you in some way. I'm trying to point you to the word of God. And I'm asking you to have a conversation. And so Pastor Murray and I are going to have in the Bible study on Wednesday, go open Q&A. We do that. From, you know, hopefully we try to do it on a monthly basis. After the study, you hear things, and we're doing judges now. Ask us questions. I'm going to invite brethren who are very, feel very strongly about this Black Lives Matter um, doctrine. Let's have a conversation. I would like to have a, 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 a digital roundtable. So you bring your colleagues who are also feel very strongly about this doctrine. And I, I haven't asked uh, my brothers yet, but I'm, I'm pretty sure they would agree. Uh, Pastor Murray and Deacon Jan and I will roundtable with you. We will record it and we'll make it available to the brethren. And, and we'll just have a conversation. So that's going to be the call to action. At the end of this message, 
if you still don't understand where I'm coming from, or you feel that you have very strong counter arguments, then let's have an open discussion, let's record it, and let's make it available to the brethren so that your point of view can be heard. But, but what I would ask is really digest the messages that I've given plus the message that Pastor Murray gave and the, pa- the message that Deacon Jan gave. I think these five messages together really give you our biblical perspective on Black Lives Matter. So if you then are willing to come with your biblical perspective on Black Lives Matter, then come now. Let us reason together and let's record it and make it available to the brethren so they can hear your perspective as well. So let's get into today's message. And just to remind you, the concerns that our sister had fell into three categories. One was, you know, was I raising um, the past of George Floyd to condemn him? And I think if you listen to the message carefully, uh, that's clearly not the case. I made it very clear George Floyd is going to be resurrected. He's going to be taught. Uh, I did not condemn. And, and Pastor Murray, hopefully, Pastor Murray, if you're, if you're able to look up your message, where he gave a very detailed message on the difference between judge and condemn. And Christians are to judge. The spiritual man judges everything. We are to judge. We are to discern. We are to understand what, what's going on in the world and the people around us. We're to be as, as uh, uh, discerning as serpents. A serpent is sitting still and, what, and undersees, understands everything. But yet we're to be as harmless as doves. So we see everything, but we don't hurt. So I was giving you in a world of mass manipulation to, to just tell you guys this, his past is relevant and some people are now saying well it's his past, people can repent He's a change, he was a changed man at the time of his arrest, if you watch the video carefully he is dispensing cocaine he's, he's, he's discarding drugs he's high on fentanyl so it's not just his past it was his present right up to his dying moment so we have a concern about the character of George Floyd. And let me just, um, you know, some of you think that I'm, I'm exaggerating here. So let me just take a moment and share something with you that will make it clear to you what I mean when I say, and hang on a second, looks like it's not cooperating with me. And this is, this is going to be an issue. I'm going to have to uh, make sure I fix this. If uh, this application doesn't work, I'll have to do it on another computer. Always have a backup, so the way we set ourselves up here is to have backups to backups. So if you just uh, give me a moment, and I'll sort this out. Just give me one moment, brethren. And that's the nature of technology. Uh, you have to have backups. Backup plans, redundancy. So we build in some redundancy here, and let's make sure that that's working well. Okay, so we'll do it this way. And what I want to show you here, that I'm not kidding when I tell you that George Floyd is being made a saint, and he's being presented to black people as a heroic figure. And I'm just, my my point was, (laughs) brothers and sisters, we're being manipulated. 
And you've got to understand that. You've got to understand the manipulation. So that was the answer to question one. And, and really the key there is to understand that there's a difference between the Lord's body and the world. And, and how we're being manipulated is to love George Floyd and to hate brethren in the body. And, and initially I was saying white brethren. So black brethren could be manipulated to feel like we're under attack, to stand up for our race, and to feel uh, alienated from the white brethren in our community. So that was my message. And then I'll add myself to the list as well, that because I'm not standing up for George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, that I'm also now alienated. And so we see this division in the body, and I'm saying, brethren, this is a concern. We have to be able to discern someone who is spirit-filled and part of the family of God from those who are not yet given that opportunity. So the second question now, were you suggesting that racism no longer exists and invalidating the experiences of people who have experienced it? So that was the second question. And then the third sort of category of questions, which is, uh, so the second question is, are you invalidating racism, systemic racism? And then the third question, and, and this to me is the question. This, this is the killer question. And if you were not asking this question, then you need to be really grateful to the sister who raised this question, because this is the killer question. Should Christians pursue social justice, legal justice in this life? So that's, that's really the question. So I'm now, so this part two is going to answer those two questions. Am I invalidating systemic racism? And should we pursue social justice as Christians? So let's, let's go there. So what I'd say first of all, it is impossible for me. <laughs> uh, I was born in 1962. So it's impossible for me to invalidate uh, racism, to say racism doesn't exist, or even that, that systemic racism did not exist historically. My position is it does not exist in America, and I'll say Canada as well, in 2020. Systemic racism does not exist. And I want to uh, ask you to give me an opportunity to make my case. And then what I said was, let's have a conversation. So if you have case, if you have data, if you have facts, and you want to share those facts, you want to share that data, I'll listen. But I'm going to put forward a case now, answering question number two, showing you data that tells me, and also personal experience, why I don't believe systemic racism exists today, and, and why I think that's a Marxist ploy. When I get to question number three, I'm going to hit the Bible heavy. So question number two, I'm giving you stats. Question number three, I'm giving you scripture. And then the call to action is, digest what I've said, what I've presented, please, and then show me where I'm wrong. Show me where my salvation might be at stake because I'm so wrong. Because my position, if you support Black Lives Matter, is your salvation is at stake. And the stakes could not be higher. And I'm speaking to you plainly and bluntly out of my love for you? And have, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? 
So I was born in 1962. I lived racism. I grew up being called nigger, blackie, all of that. I remember um, my, my sisters and my brother and I, uh, we just loved to play outdoors. And when I say play outdoors, I mean catch insects, anything that moved. We, we just loved to catch it, study it, release it, pick and catch something else. And that, that's how we spent our days, riding our bicycles and catching insects and, and reptiles and, and, uh, and you know, amphibians, I guess you would call them, um, all of that. So... One day we're coming back, and, and we lived in a poor neighborhood, and we're getting in the elevator, and all four of us are in the elevator, and these two uh, white adults, uh, two white ladies, older ladies, are in the elevator, and we get in the elevator, and they look at us with disgust, you, you, dis- with disdain. And one says to the other, with disdain, they're getting blacker and blacker every day. And the funny thing is, it's, it was probably true. <laughs> we, you know, in the summertime, we're out, we're spending the whole day in the sun. We get darker. Uh, but you could hear the nastiness. You could hear the hatred. We were kids. I was probably you know eight years old. We were kids, and they were probably sixty over sixty. And there was hatred that they would have to share this elevator with us. And then you know shortly after that, we started getting mail from the National Front. And we were stunned, and we started to get these uh, um, uh, automated phone calls. Just, it was like basically a Nazi movement. And that, that's the first time I really saw real racism, a dangerous racism. But then all through school, uh, we faced racism. All of this, as a child, was nothing compared to when I became a Rastafarian. And I think most of you know, the, know my story, or part of it anyway that in, on my way to being called by God, uh, I, and I shared this with you last week, I believe, that at that age 15, I was gripped with this existential crisis. What is this life all about? They're teaching me evolution in school. Is that true, or is there a God? What happens after you die? And, and, and at the same time, I was in this crisis of what does it mean to be black, and why, why wasn't I born white? And, and all of this was rolling around at the same time for me. And... I, I decided, well, I spent my time actually at the library studying the religions, all the religions of the world, anything I could get my hands on. I, I would I'd leave school and, and rush to the library and go to the religious section. And in all of that, somebody actually, a neighbor, gave me a, uh, an, a, an album by Bob Marley, and that's how I kind of discovered the Rastafarians and started to look in, into that. But at 15 years old, I was in pain, and I became very angry. I was in pain because I was black in a racist society. I was in pain because I was ashamed of being poor, of, of being a, uh, having a single parent. Everybody else in the class had mother and father. I, I'm the only one that, that just has a single mother. I, you know, I was afraid of, I was ashamed of being poor. I don't know if anybody knows uh, Klim. If you've heard of Klim. We didn't drink milk. We drank Klim. Klim is milk spelled backwards, but it was powdered, skimmed milk, and you mix it with water, and that's what we had. And, you know, you open the tin, you need the spoon to kind of open the tin, but you can't just open the tin and take out the powder and mix it to make your milk. Before you open the tin, you've got to remove all the cockroach legs that have gathered overnight, and maybe cockroach eggs, 
clean those out first because if you open it, they could fall into the, into the powder. No one else was living like that. They were living in nice houses. I was in pain from not having a father and a lot of uh, turmoil from the domestic abuse that we escaped. And I was really in pain from not knowing what happens when I die. And then when I asked the adults in my life, the pathetic, superficial answers that they gave me made me very angry. And I realized at 15 years old, I'm becoming a man, but I don't know how to be a man. And so I was like, how do I be a man? Where, what is a father figure that I could kind of latch on to, to say that's how I want to be? And I chose two men. I chose two men. One was Malcolm X. And I just, I loved this man. And I studied this man. And some people say, you know, Adrian, you're intense. Well, I'm intense because at a, at a tender age, I modeled myself after Malcolm X. I said, this is what it means to be a man. This is somebody who stands up for what he believes in, doesn't back down, and is willing to put his life on the line. In fact, he, he, he was assassinated for speaking the truth or speaking what he understood to be the truth. And, and I will never back down because this is what's wired into my DNA. My father, first of all, was a very intense man. But then I had Malcolm X, and I said, yes, that's what it means to be a man. That's what it means to be a black man. You have to believe in something bigger than yourself that you're willing to die for. And the irony that I didn't appreciate at the time, but I do now, is he was assassinated by the very people he was advocating for, by the very people he loved. They're the ones that assassinated him. But uh, this is how I'm wired. People say to me, Adrian, you're, you're courageous. Well, I don't know. I'm wired to speak truth, to pursue something larger than myself and stand up for it. And the other person that I chose as my role model was Bob Marley. That when I studied this man, what I saw in Malcolm X was courage and, and significance and dignity. And what I saw in Bob Marley were the same things, but I saw authenticity. The right to be yourself. I have a right to be myself. I have a right to be comfortable in my own skin. And this pursuit of truth, that no matter what, he was pursuing truth and greater meaning. And so I spent a lot of time at the library studying Rastafarianism and wanting to understand it. And, and came to the point where, you know what? I'm, I'm making the decision. I'm going, to be, I'm going to become a Rastafarian now. I faced racism as a young black person, but I never faced racism like I faced when I made the decision to grow my hair in dreadlocks. T today, I'm, I'm astonished that I look at, everybody has dreadlocks today. It's a fashion statement. Back in my day, over 40 years ago, it was a death sentence. You, you were writing yourself off. And my mother had to give me the ultimatum. If, son, if you're doing that and you're dropping out of school, you can't live here. And so that's how I became homeless, because I made the commitment, I'm, I'm a Rastafarian. And so that, you know, and, and when I spoke as well, um, the inner journey, I gave a sermon back after Murray opened up the idea of storytelling, and I talked about the hero's journey, 
and how we looked at Job's life and, and how we tell stories. We have to understand these three acts of story, how Job was in his ordinary world, living his ordinary life, but as the hero, the main character, there's something that he wanted, but there was also a fatal flaw. And that from there, he's, he's yanked out of the ordinary world and plunged into the changing world where his goal is then threatened. But also he takes with him his fatal flaw into the changing world where now an adversary shows up and there's conflict and turmoil and he could lose everything. And the only way out of the changing world is for him to overcome that fatal flaw. And the only way he can do that is when a special resource shows up that is outside of himself, that can give him the, the key and the tools and the resources to overcome that fatal flaw so he can then enter the new world and, and become transformed and, and even transform the world. And often the way these stories are told, sometimes the hero does not enter the new world. He simply re-enters the ordinary world, but he's a changed person. And that is exactly my experience, that I was in this ordinary world, and then suddenly the decision to grow my hair in dreadlocks yanked me out of the ordinary world and plunged me into this mysterious, this uh, mystical fantastic, extraordinary world. And where I didn't know where I was going to live from one day to the next, I didn't know what I was going to eat, I didn't know who I was going to meet. It was just a, a, an incredible adventure. And then from there, I returned to the ordinary world, but I was transformed. Now, in that world, that, that subculture that I entered, which most people have no idea that the subculture even exists, this, this undercurrent to society, much of which a lot of criminal activity occurs in that underworld. But there are also people that are extremely sincere. They have nothing. And, and these are the people that shaped me. And so initially, I had nowhere to go. I, I had to just sleep on, in a stairwell the first night. The second night, I, I, just, I, I was on the subway, and I just approached a Rastafarian. And I just explained to him that I have made the covenant. I've made the commitment. And now I'm homeless. Can I, can I stay with him? And these people will give you the shirt off their back. They look scary. And that's the whole idea of dread. The, the dreadlocks, you know, the criminals are scary. But the look looks scary. But these people have hearts of gold. And, and this is how I was formed. This is when I was trying. What does it mean to be? These are the people who, who shaped me. And so he said, yes, stay with me. He had nothing. Breakfast was a spliff, a joint. That was his breakfast. But at least he, I, he, I could stay with him. And then he arranged for me to stay with other people. And so I ended up moving around and bouncing around. And I can just remember one person was a drug dealer. And he, I was with him, and he took me, because he was delivering drugs to somebody, to this house, which was, had a bunch of Rastafarians there. And they all sat, and they, buy, they bought their drugs from him. I guess he had high quality. And they reasoned. This was their, one of their highest pleasures. They would simply say, come, make we reason. And reason means, it doesn't mean debate. It, it kind of means discussion, but it's not quite discussion. I would explore it as exploratory. I would, I would define it as exploratory discussion. So people would smoke the marijuana, often it's a spliff, but sometimes it's a chalice. And some of you may not know what a chalice is. So you'll see here what it is to smoke the chalice. 
Now, when you sit with these men, you cannot be superficial. You better not talk unless you have something to say. But at the same time, they want to hear what you have to say. And when you come under the influence of the chalice, especially if you're not used to it, your real self comes out. They, they get to see you fully for who and what you are. And so no, no fools, no charlatans, no simpletons can sit with these men. But they let me sit with them. And when you sit with them, you don't introduce yourself as, hey, I'm Adrian. They don't care what your name is. They give you a name. And so as I learned to sit with these men, they gave me a name. I became Englishman. So I, just, I was just known as the Englishman. And so we would talk, or they, I, and they, everyone had their names. I, I, they wouldn't have, they were, whatever they were called, they would share their names. But I was Englishman. And they loved to reason. And, and it wasn't debate. It was like they were exploring a topic. And they're not there to convince you of their opinion on the topic. And they're not there to be convinced by you of your opinion on the topic. They truly want everyone together to explore the topic and advance everyone's understanding. And so they might from time to time turn to me and say, Englishman, what do you think? Because I had studied so much and I dived into this, I had opinions and they wanted to hear. But I was like, I was a teenager, I was 17. But after sitting with me repeatedly, they changed my name from Englishman to Roots. They had respect for me. They called me Roots. Even though I didn't speak with Patois, even though I didn't come from Jamaica, they, they saw that I was somebody who was coming back to the Roots, and I really understood. So I, I feel like the Apostle Paul, when he's saying, look, you, you want to talk about the law? I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. You want to talk about black activism? I was the black activist of the activists. Now, I had to leave these men because I was pursuing truth. And in my mind, I was very idealistic. I was looking for perfection. And I could not get over their worship of Haley Selassie. Their lifestyle, their simplicity, their honesty. These were basically, these were Christians with a, a flawed understanding. But they had Christian character. And they would give you the shirt off their back, the real ones. And I, and I haven't shared the story at this depth, because I, I don't want people to think I, in any way I endorse marijuana, and now it's legal. And I, I actually, because of the experience I had with it, when I was earlier in the faith, I thought, if it became legal, what would I do? And my position on marijuana is I would never touch it again. Never touch it again. I don't want anything altering my mind, especially who knows what people are doing with it today. But going into any kind of mind-altering state, I think that opens you up to demonic influence. But I'll tell you, these men influenced me. And, and what they gave me was a real sense of dignity. I moved on, and I still remember some of these men, the influence they have over me in terms of what is a man? What does a man look like? How does he conduct himself? They have influenced me. That's where I come from. I, I come from the ghetto. And I'm not ashamed of that. 
And when I go into corporate boardrooms today, I share with them, I come from the ghetto. And they're inspired by it. They turn to their salespeople and say, look where he came from. What's your excuse? So, and the other thing I'll say as well is, if they, with their flawed understanding, can sit down and say, come, make a reason. Why can't Christians, with the Bible, sit down with one another and open the Bible and say, let's explore together and collectively advance our understanding on this topic? Why can't we reason? God wants to reason with us. So I became scum of the earth. Unless I'm very sensitive to the scripture when God says, look at your calling, brethren. Not many wise men are called, not many noble. But God calls the weak and the base things. Well, God called me from the bottom of society. God, God called me, I faced racism. Even my own people despised me. Now, back in the day, black people didn't want trouble. You grow your hair in tre- dreadlocks, you're a troublemaker. I find it laughable today that people who despised me 43 years ago today are saying black lives matter. Uh, wait a minute. <laughs> Where were you 43 years ago? So, some of you weren't even born, but, but people who I knew, now they're saying black lives matter. And it's like, oh, I get it. Now, it, now it's not trouble. Now you say black lives matter, you, you have everybody agreeing with you. So now it's okay. Well, I don't go along with things just because society does. I was always pursuing truth. And unfortunately, my fatal flaw, or one of them, one of them was pride and self-reliance. But another fatal flaw that I had was idealism. I was young. And because of that, I could be hoodwinked and deceived. And I fell into a, a group of people that were very nasty, very, very nasty. On the surface, they seemed so, their, their rhetoric was wonderful. But their hearts were very dark. And they sought to destroy me. And God, through that process, shattered me. And, and I, I got to this point where I, the, the, the dreadlocks I was wearing that gave me power and made me feel something, they just meant nothing. And I finally got to this point where I, I, I can't do this. I, I, you know, these people are just on welfare, criticizing the government, going nowhere. I've got to do something. And so I decided to turn around and go back home. And I let my mom cut my dreadlocks off. And, and we cried, and my family cried, and I share. I didn't share with them the, the, the deep experiences that I had, the mystical experiences that I had, the supernatural experiences that I had. But I shared with them some of the hardship that I went through. We all cried and came back together and started to put my life together. But I, I met some very, very nasty people. But the same way that Job, in a sense, had to be hacked so that his fatal flaw could be exposed. And, and he had to be hacked in a big way because the fatal flaw was in the foundation of his character. In the same way, I had to be hacked in a big way. I had to be shattered. I had to be, sh- I had to be shattered in a thousand pieces. That, the one I, I thought, I'm either going to commit suicide or I'm going to end up in an insane asylum or I, I have to start to turn my life around. And, and that's when Christ called me from the bottom. And then he started to put me back together. And looking back, I now understand why I had to be shattered. But I'll tell you, that experience and the people that I was with, that, that has, that's what shaped me. 
You know, people say, oh, Adrian, you're courageous. I, first of all, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. But, but secondly, the people that I was with, they're the, they're the whole system. So I come from this extraordinary world, and I, and I feel like the man who fell to earth. And so I go into these boardrooms, start, you know, start to go back into the boardrooms, and that's another point as well. Uh, I started off in sales and telemarketing. Well, first of all, when I was putting my life back together, I had to be a security guard. That was like, I, I did that before. I, I went back to that, and I just, I, I needed to work. And I just became meticulous in my work. I was the best security guard. They would call me and like, we're getting, like, who are you? Uh, I just needed to work and to work meticulously. And that, there was a lot of healing in having something to do and, to, and doing it well. But when I went on and to school and then discovered sales, I started off in telemarketing and setting appointments for, for salespeople. And I was very good at it, and they wanted to keep me there. But I didn't want to stay there. I wanted to be in sales. I wanted to be in the field. And I didn't understand it at the time. But looking back, it was like, uh, you're black. <laughs> we can't have you going into boardrooms. You, you go on the phone, and you make the call, make the appointments for us. But I got to the point where uh, I'll quit. I, I know I can do this. I want to do this. Just give me a chance. And I had a, a manager, uh, Kevin Higgins, vice president of sales, and a, another mentor, a white man, another mentor for me, who I could see he believed in me. And he put me in the role in, in the field. And back in the day, we didn't have what we have today. We didn't even have email. So it was all phone and snail mail letters. And so Adrian Davis, I would write a letter. I would follow up by phone call. I would build a relationship with him on the phone. I would schedule an appointment. And all this time, Adrian Davis, the way I sound, the, everything, they had no idea I was black. So when it came time to meet, and this was just consistent, there's this, they, you know, Adrian Davis is here. First of all, there's the receptionist. You can tell she's shocked I'm a black man. And then the actual executives that I'm meeting with, there's, there's this awkward 30 seconds or a minute where it's like, you're Adrian Davis? You don't sound black. You, you know, I talked to you on the phone, and Adrian Davis, the name doesn't sound black. And here you are. And there was this almost like despising. And you know what? I was the man who fell to earth. I come from a completely different society. So whatever hierarchical structure you belong to, I don't belong to it. I, I know what a real man is and how to judge a real man's character. When I was in school, I read this book by R.D. Lang, a sociologist, sociologist, and he began the book by saying, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Most men are desperate inside. So <laughs> if, you, you, if you envy people because they have things, <laughs> it's, tell me, let me tell you, a lot of people with things, they're sick in the head, and their family lives are just disgusting, and their character is disgusting. So you never look at people's things and, and covet their things. So yeah, I faced racism. I could not say there's no such thing as racism. What I am saying, though, is there's no such thing today in 2020 of systemic racism. Systemic racism is a Marxist ploy. It's a way to get us to believe that we have to tear down the system. And what systemic racism means is white man bad. The white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, heterosexual male is the patriarchy. And we need the oppressor. 
we need to tear the, tear down the system by tearing down this white patriarch because really the agenda is to uproot Christianity. And so we've shifted from Marxism to cultural Marxism. And if you don't understand that, you have to study that. There's lots of resources out there to understand that. Uh, the latest one I came across is Vodi uh, uh, Bokum. Uh, he's just brilliant in explaining this. I was listening to another uh, message from him where he's defending the Trinity. So he doesn't understand what we understand, but he understands cultural Marxism. And he's done a good job explaining that. So systemic racism, let me show you, let's share some stats now to say, you know, is there uh, systemic racism in the West in 2020? And please, bring your stats and, and let's explore the topic. So I shared with you already the crime statistics that showed uh, most, the problem is mostly black on black and white on white crime. So 80% of white people murdered are murdered by white people. And 89%, let's round up and just say 90%, 90% of black people that are killed are killed by black people. So if black lives matter, we absolutely cannot ignore this. Why would we ignore this? If 90% of the lives that are being lost to homicide, so homicide is the leading cause of death in young males, young black males, 18 to 34, they die from homicide and mostly by other young black males. Why would we ignore this? Now, when it comes to police, because the, the, the narrative is that police are hunting down and killing uh, black, young black men. Well, the Washington Post, which is a, a liberal organization, they did a study. They went back in 2015 and were very detailed in their study. And they found that in 2018, 995 people were shot and killed by police. And that that was the lowest number since 2015 when they actually began collecting and reporting the data. So then they break down the 995 people who were shot and killed by the police. 403 of them were white, 210 were black. Then they said out of that 995, 47 were unarmed. And of those that were unarmed, 23 were white and 17 were black. So of the 995 people that were killed by police in 2018, only 47 of them were unarmed. And of those that were unarmed, only 17 of those were black. And unarmed doesn't mean dangerous. It just means that at the time they didn't have a weapon, but that maybe they were trying to get the police officer's weapon, in which case they were trying to arm themselves. But out of 995 people, only 17 were black. This is the Washington Post. This is a liberal rag. Of the 30 to 50 million interactions that the police had with the American public last year, 10 million people were arrested. So they interact, but they might not necessarily arrest you. So 10 million were arrested. And less than 0.01% were shot and killed by police. Out of those 10 people that were arrested, 47 of those that were shot and killed were unarmed which equates to 0.00047%, and 17 of those were black. So the amount of black people that were unarmed, that were killed by police in 2018, is 0.00017%. And yet the narrative, what the Marxist media wants us to believe, is that the police have nothing better than to do, to do than to run around hunting black people 
and killing them for sport because of systemic racism. The stats do not back that up, and this is a liberal paper. Now, the real problem is family. This is a site, that life site, that looks at Planned Parenthood. And they say minority groups have complained for decades that Planned Parenthood has been targeting their communities. And Life Issues Institute's research has substantiated that claim with clear evidence. According to the Guttmacher Institute, black women in 2011 had the highest unintended pregnancy rates at 79 per thousand, age 15 to 44, compared to 33 for white women. Also, according to Guttmacher, black women received 30% of the abortions in 2011, while blacks are only 12.6% of the population. So something is going on here, that, that black babies are being targeted for abortion. If black lives matter, these souls matter. And what Planned Parenthood is doing, it's basically mass murder. The founder of Planned Parenthood is Margaret Sanger. She is quoted as saying, colored people are like human weeds and need to be exterminated. This is Planned Parenthood. And this is how somehow miraculously the abortion clinics for Planned Parenthood always end up in black neighborhoods. And the fetal tissue and fetal organs are sold on the black market. This is a form of genocide. If black lives matter, these babies' lives matter. And Planned Parenthood should come under suspicion. You know, we're in this cancel culture where we can go back and find things that you said years ago and cancel you. Well, let's look at Planned Parenthood. Let's look at the founder of Planned Parenthood and see that colored people are like human weeds and need to be exterminated. Shouldn't we cancel Planned Parenthood? Listen now to this gentleman, uh, which is Thomas Sowell. And he is an economist. And he's uh, just really... um, uh, respected for his insight in the black condition. So let me share with you his thoughts.
Sorry, brother. I just got a note there that you're not hearing that. So I'm just going to try, try that again. It's really important to hear what he's saying. So let me just um, pull that. And uh, I'm just going to reshare that for you. Give me one second. Again, we always have redundancy. We always have backups to the backups. So let's just see if we can hear this. Give me one second. Okay, this should uh, work now. I'm going to share my screen. Give me one moment, brethren. It's important to listen to this. Uh, very, very important stats. So I'm just going to go back here and just share this right here. You should hear this now. The end of slavery. Right. 22% of black. 1960, which would be almost 100 years after the end of slavery. Right. 22% of black kids grew up in homes with only one parent. Just 22%? Yes. Four out of five were in homes with both parents? Yes. Uh, 30 years later, after the liberal welfare state, that number had more than tripled. And so I say, well, let us compare. If, if we, we can speculate on how much that 22% was due to the legacy of slavery. But we know that that tripling was not due to the legacy of slavery. It was due to the legacy of a whole different set of policies. And you can and, and you can look at it so many other ways. Uh, education. Uh, Stuyvesant High School in New York, as you know, you get into only by passing a very tough exam. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2012, the percentage of black students who had gotten into Stuyvesant High School was less than one-tenth of the percentage of black students who had gotten into Stuyvesant High School 33 years earlier. I didn't know that. Dunbar High School in Washington, which was an elite black high school for a very long time. In 1993, the number of uh, kids out of Dunbar High School who went on to college was less than it was 60 years earlier, which would have been in the depth of the Great Depression. Uh, and so you can run through a whole bunch of other things like that. Uh, look at the housing projects. Uh, the housing projects in the first half of the 20th century, during that first hundred years after slavery, uh, were, ha did not have the high crime rates, the murder rates, uh, the graffiti, uh, the, all the rest of it. We, we so, none of that was there. Uh, people, uh, like the New York Times, I should, uh, uh, Christoph should read his own pa old papers, uh, uh, pointed out that on Saturday mornings, it was common in the housing project of this earlier era mm -hmm. for, for parents to leave their doors unlocked because some of the parents could afford television, some couldn't. So the ones who had television would leave their doors unlocked, and the kids from the other families could come down there and watch television with them. Well, now the latest figures show that uh, most people below the poverty line have two television sets and cable, but they wouldn't dare leave their doors unlocked in a public housing project. I'm quoting that column again. Liberals have wreaked more havoc on blacks than the supposed legacy of slavery they talk about. 
Yeah. You don't mean that hyperbolically. No, I do not. You so I thought that's very important for you to listen to this economist who does very deep studies, published numerous books. He's highly regarded, Thomas Sowell, and please look him up and research him. Very, very insightful. And so a lot of us, and I certainly believed, that the, the destruction of the black family was a result of slavery. But what he's saying is, no, that's not true. That coming out of slavery, 22% of child, black children were born out of wedlock. A uh, hundred years later, coming out of slavery, it was tripled that. It was 67%. And, and that is the destruction of the family. And that's what leads to all these problems. So, and I know my great-grandmother, uh, I've been told stories about, about her. Uh, she was a very strict Christian, and she was probably the, the daughter of people who were enslaved in Jamaica. Uh, but she was very, very strict. And a lot of the slaves, when they came out of slavery, they had very high morals, very strong Christian principles. There was very high community pride. And as you heard him say as well, the projects, the housing projects, were very safe because people were mostly Christian. And now with these liberal policies, and particularly uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, with the Great Society and the welfare state that he created, and the war on poverty, he was going to destroy, he was going to the war on poverty, that that's what destroyed the black family. And this is de uh, Democrats and Republicans, because Republican presidents came in after him, and they didn't reverse it. They kept spending and doubling down. And these policies, they've spent $15 trillion dollars on the war on poverty since 1964, when Lyndon B. Johnson launched it. $15 trillion, and they've made poverty worse, and they've destroyed the black family. And so now, if you look at these stats, you'll see, and this is the, this is the U.S. Census Bureau, where these stats come from, the living arrangements of children under 18. And you can see by race here, white children, Hispanic children, and off the charts, basically, black children. That this war on poverty, these democratic, these liberal policies have destroyed the black family by giving women welfare and rewarding them for having children out of wedlock. That get rid of the man, let the government be your husband. Get rid of the man, let the government be the, the children's father. And this has destroyed the black community. And that's what Black Lives Matter is all about. That we know that fatherlessness is an epidemic. And Black Lives Matter seeks to destroy the family. And they want to exclude the father from the family structure because the father represents patriarchy. So Black Lives Matter is doubling down. Lyndon B. Johnson really started this with the Great Society, this, this uh, idealism, the war on poverty. $15 trillion has been spent on this war on poverty. And now Black Lives Matter looks at the situation of black people being, quote unquote, hunted by police, which we saw statistically is just not true. That's a fabrication. But it's a very convenient one. But let's, let's look at the real situation that black people are killing black people. And, and the amount of crime that black people represent less than 10% of the U.S. population. They're responsible for 50% of the violent crime. That, that was not the case coming out of slavery. Black people had dignity, they had families, they were primarily Christian and very, very careful to uphold the dignity of their families until the welfare state, which took the man out of the home. 
And then that's what destroyed the black family. And now along comes Black Lives Matter to say, we have the solution. We have the solution to fatherlessness, is to make systemic fatherlessness. And so you look at these stats, 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. That's from the U.S. Department of Health Census. I was one of the, I, I, commit, I, I contemplated committing suicide. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. Uh, hey, that's funny. I, I was from a fatherless home. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. Boy, did I have behavior disorders. I was a very angry young man. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes. Praise God. <laughs> I was never, I'm not a rapist. I was never a rapist. Never came close to being a rapist. But I was very angry. And I had a very bad example of how to treat women and how to perceive women. So I could have been one of these. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. Nine times the average. That's from the National Principals Association report. And the other one was from Justice and Behavior and the other stat from the Center for Disease Control. These are real stats. So, yeah, let's have a conversation. You bring your stats. But systemic racism is not our problem. Our problem is the destruction of the black family, which came from handouts. And so we think we can solve that by getting more handouts. So we see this, 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 this system. This is the system. And, and I said the system is colorblind. You don't have to, as a black person, be a part of this system. You can get out. And just because you're white doesn't mean that you won't participate in this system. You can totally be oppressed. So there's systemic oppression. Yes, there's systemic oppression. But to say that there's systemic racism in the system. So you know, what do we mean when we say systemic? Let's define our terms. When I, when I look at an organization to consult their sales processes, I'm looking for systemic competence. What that means is the system is competent and that it doesn't rely on people. That if you have a brilliant superstar salesperson and he or she leaves, your company doesn't fall apart. Why? Because the competence is in the system. It's in the processes and procedures. It's not in the personalities. If you say systemic racism, what you're saying is the personalities don't matter. That it's in the system. That it's the system that is designed. There, are, there is legislation and there are policies and procedures that are designed to hunt and destroy black lives versus, yeah, racism. Racism is a sin of the heart, and there's all kinds of sin. But what I see is systemic affirmative action. What I see is uh, systemic diversity programs. That's what's in the system, that if somebody doesn't hire somebody just because they're black, they'll lose their job. If somebody fires somebody just because they're black, they'll lose their job. If it's found out that you demoted somebody just because they're black, you'll lose your job. So, so let's define our terms. So we see this vicious cycle of destroying the family, which leads to fatherless children, which leads to a dependence on government, which leads to increased poverty and crime and all of that. So that's the cycle. And Black Lives Matter comes along and says, we're going to destroy the family even further to plunge the black race even deeper into this vicious cycle. Now, if you, if you have funded Black Lives Matter, you need to repent. Let me look in the camera. If you have funded Black Lives Matter, you need to repent. If you have shown support for the organization Black Lives Matter on your social media, 
you need to take that support down. You need to repent. There's Christ and Black Lives Matter cannot coexist. What does Belial have to do with Christ? So if you fund Black Lives Matter, at the very bottom, you'll see a note that says that this goes to Act Blue Charities. And when you drill down on Act Blue Charities, these donations actually go to the Democratic Party, which, which repeat this cycle of handing out welfare because the Democratic Party wants dependence. They want people to depend on the government so that they can constantly vote them in. And because now they're nervous about the black vote, that they can't just take it for granted anymore, now they want to open the borders and bring in a whole bunch of people who are illiterate and who will occupy that low rung and get free stuff so that they don't have to depend on the black vote so much because they're nervous about the black vote. So when you look now at these policies, this is, this is stats, this is data. America's 25 worst cities are Democrat-led. This, this handing out and welfare, it's destroying the black race. And there's the bottom line here. America is experiencing the best economy in 50 years, lifting every major minority group with record low unemployment, growth, dollar valuation, and accelerated, accelerating wages. This should turn the tide in American cities. So this is what we want. We want jobs so that black men can afford to marry women, their black women, their wives, and be in the home and raise children. And we don't want women saying, you know what, it's, it's more economically advantageous for me to not to have you in my life because I get checks from the government. Of the top 10 most dangerous cities in America, according to Forbes, all have Democratic mayors. It goes on. Race may have little to do with it, although poverty and unemployment are tied to violent crime prevalence. Of the 25 most dangerous, they are mostly Democrat-led and have poverty rates between 18 to 39%. So, so these policies of welfare are destroying black people. This is the, this is the problem, not, not, ra- not systemic racism. It's, it's this, these policies of, of dependence growing the government. So $15 trillion, somebody's getting rich. These hacked documents show it's Soros funding Black Lives Matter. I was accused recently of doing the white man's bidding. (laughs) This is hilarious. The amount of research that I have done to form my opinions and perspective that I can share with you, and the people who accuse me of this have done no research and are, are supporting Black Lives Matter. And the irony of ironies is if you support Black Lives Matter, you're doing the white man's bidding because it's George Soros and Tom Steyer and the Clinton Foundation and the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds that are heavily funding this thing to the tune of tens of millions of dollars globally. Why would this thing take off globally? Why would people in Japan be protesting about a black man, a black criminal that was killed by police in, a, in another country? They're Japanese. Why, why are they into Black Lives Matter? There's an agenda here. And we, 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 that's why we cannot play the fool. If you read the uh, communist goals, they make it clear. One of the, and, and research this. Go and search the 45 communist goals. And one of their goals was to take over one of the parties. So that's where we are. That's, that's data. I want to share that with you. So if you have data to show that, yeah, there really is systemic racism. You know, when I go for my walks, 
and I'm in my casual clothes. I've got dark sunglasses on. I've got a, a baseball cap on, T-shirt on. And maybe, and I, when, I'm, when I'm in thought, I have this issue, and again, it's the way I'm wired. I can't think and smile at the same time. If I'm thinking, I'm, I'm in intense mode, and if I'm smiling, I'm not thinking. But to do both at the same time, it's just not in my personality. I wish, I, I wish it was. I wish it could be more, more jovial. But I'm just a, kind of this, when I think, I think. Again, I'm wired after Malcolm X, Bob Marley, and my father. Very intense men. So I'm walking. I'm paying my own, minding my own business. And I think maybe somebody looking at me might think I'm intimidating. And you know, every white person that passes me, good morning. Hello. Good morning. How are you? Nice weather, isn't it? <laughs> we don't have systemic racism. The West is a wonderful civilization. It, it is miraculous what we have pulled off. And, and we, could, we could make this really great. But instead, we're being agitated to tear it down because we have enemies. We have, we have people who want totalitarian global control. And the only way to bring down Western civilization, because it is so powerful, is from within. And so that's what we're seeing. So I wanted to give you some data. I want to just take a quick break, Pastor Murray, if you don't mind, uh, just coming back in. And if you could give us a, a quick hymn. And then um, what I want to do is come back and hit the Bible. And now answer the question, should Christians pursue social justice? Sure. Uh, know, thanks, Pastor Murray. Um, Pastor Murray, yep. you wanted to make a few comments as well. Uh, sure. So while uh, Sister Jennifer is getting ready, uh, you made a comment about uh, uh, the cancel culture. And one thing that I wanted to uh, to uh, sort of maybe throw out your way and something that struck me as I was, uh, you know, as we read and, and watch all these the, the, the news items is the uh, you were taken to task for bringing out, as you mentioned here earlier, to bring out George Floyd's past. Uh, in reference to uh, him being held up as a hero because he did die a brutal death and, and we, we all acknowledge that it was it was complete murder but you were were bringing out some of his past which was is is being um, um, by by those that support this movement is being uh, um, something we shouldn't do is bring up his past but when we look at all of the, the founding fathers and all of these uh, statues being torn down because they were uh, because they held slaves, that was just one part of their life was was the fact that the economy at that time. And I don't want to get into into that too deeply, but they did so much for the country. But all these men, some of these men also were slave owners. Um, where does cancel culture fit one, but cancel, cancel culture doesn't fit the other? It's, and, and what the Bible teaches us is to be consistent. And, uh, the issue, the problems that we're seeing with a lot, of, with a lot of these discussions is people simply are consistent. Exactly. You, you have hit the nail on the head. That so, uh, uh, what we'll do now, as you've asked, is we will uh, go to a hymn, uh, just to give us a bit of a, a, a break. Uh, so, uh, Sister Jennifer, we thank you again for uh, playing the piano here. We'll go to page 95. The words will pop up on your screen. Uh, and we'll sing Sweet Hour of Prayer. And then immediately following that, we'll return to part uh, two of today's sermon. Sweet Hour of Prayer.
So I want to now move to the last question, which is really the question. So get your Bibles. Let's dig into this. Should Christians pursue social justice? And just as, again, to, to really put a fine point on this, America is not systemically racist. They were, and the system of oppression still exists, but any black person can get out of it. You, we, it's, not, it's not focused, it's not hunting down by race. You know, today, you know, they have over 100 of the largest cities in the country. Uh, 39 have elected black mayors. 57.1% of black mayors have served in cities that did not have a majority black population. Members of Congress, more than one in five voting members of the U.S. House of Representatives and Senate are ethnic minorities. You know, there's, I could go on and on and on to just show the progress that blacks have made in America. The high, in fact, taking the highest office of the land. So the system is no longer, it, the system is colorblind. It's still brutal. It's still oppressive. But it's not focused, it's not hunting down black people. But, but this whole welfare system, we've got to get off it. And what we have to do is go back to our families the way they were after slavery. We've got to go back to our Christian values. And those black brethren among us that want to be posting on social media, that's the message. Fathers matter. You know, let, you know, do, do an experiment here. Go into a Black Lives Matter protest movement with a big T-shirt that says Fathers Matter or babies matter, or Jesus matters. And let me know how it works out for you. So let's go now to the third question. And that is really this whole notion of social justice. First of all, I want to start in Luke 8 and verse 14, just to, as a warning, the same warning that Christ gave. Let's, let's listen to Jesus Christ. Because social justice is really about the distribution, the fair distribution of wealth. That it shouldn't be concentrated in the hands of a few, it should be distributed equally. Luke eight fourteen, And that which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard and go forth, and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to perfection. So Christ is saying what we need to be focused on as Christians is bringing fruit to perfection. But if we get caught up with the cares of this life, we get distracted. And so pursuing social justice can be a big distraction. This is a big world. It's a big system. Sorting out this system requires a lot of heavy lifting. And it's hard to make that your priority and your walk with Christ. But that on the good ground are they, which in an honest and good heart, and, and, and Murray was talking there about cancel culture and sort of the hypocrisy of it. Well, if, we're, if we have a good heart, we're not, we don't have double standards. The standard we apply to one, we apply to all. Which in, a good, which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. And that's the key here. We have to hear the word. And then we have to keep it. The devil's going to do his best to uncouple us from the word. And he's sneaky. He, he was the most subtle of all the beasts of the, in the garden. He's subtle, he's sneaky. He's, he's not going to be obvious. So it's, it's, the, it's the attack that is not obvious that we have to be looking for. And the key is, are we bearing fruit? 
because that's what Christ said. Our fruit, we must bear fruit and it must remain. Now, Proverbs 31 and verses 8 and 9 are really the, the calling card of the social justice warriors within any church. It's not just the Church of God, but all the churches. You'll start to see this uh, popping up in social media because they believe that this makes a, like a very clear case that Christians must pursue social justice. Proverbs 31 and verse 8, Open your mouth for the dumb in the cause of all such as are appointed to destruction. So you look at those in the legal system, <clears throat> and uh, you know they're appointed to destruction, and they can't defend themselves. We need to de- be defending them. And verse 9, Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. There it is. Boom. Case closed. <clears throat> Christians need to open our mouths, we need to judge righteously, and we need to plead the cause of the poor and needy. Well, this gets at the heart of the social justice movement. That, And again, it's not just the Church of God. It's all Christian churches are getting swept up with this and are becoming Marxist in their orientation rather than biblical. But it's come into the Church of God as well. And so we have to understand what Marxism is and the fundamental differences between their concept of social justice and what's in the Bible. And, and fundamentally, the, the, you know, the fundamental question around Marxist social justice is why is there suffering in the world? Why, why do people suffer? Why, why do the poor suffer? And the answer to the Marxists is the unequal distribution of wealth. That's it. And that's why there must be social justice. That wealth must be equally distributed so that suffering can end. That's a very different perspective than the biblical perspective. When asked... What is the suffering, the cause of suffering in the world? The biblical scholar, the student, would say the heart of man. The the, the fallen nature of man is the cause of suffering. So simply taking wealth and spreading it equally so that, oh, now there won't be war, now there won't be poverty, now there won't be suffering, that that will not address the destructive nature an inclination of the human heart. So right off the bat, this notion of social justice is at odds with Scripture. And again, I, I, you know, just to sort of do my market research here, I don't just look at the data. I have to look at some brethren and look at your social media posts. And, and how are you preaching the good news? Because the Baalim movement is a gospel. It has good news. And the good news is that wealth will be equally distributed among the blacks. And there will be social justice for blacks. That's good news. That's a gospel. And when I, the, the, the brethren among us who support Balaam, when I read their posts, I feel, I, I feel angry. Not a, I feel angry at society. I, I feel that rioting is justified. And, and we want our rights now. And I I feel like I want to overthrow something or somebody. And if I didn't have any biblical sense, it would stir me up. 
Is that fruit? Is that good fruit? A good tree brings forth good fruit. Is that the gospel? You know, Christ says, and when I was a young man, again, my fatal flaw was being very idealistic. I was looking for perfection in everything and everybody. And I could be deceived and hoodwinked with rhetoric. I can't be anymore. I got a pounding for that. And now, I discern by fruit. Because that's what Christ tells us. Not by rhetoric, by fruit. And the thing about fruit is you can't fake it. Fruit takes time. If I were to say, um, come next week, we're going to evaluate your fruit. You know what? You don't have the time. If you haven't been producing fruit, you don't have the time in a week to, put, to cobble something together. You can cobble rhetoric together, but you can't cobble a fruit harvest. Either you've been doing the heavy lifting over time, and you have the fruit, and if I said, you know, let's evaluate your fruit next week, you'd say, well, let's do it now. Because you have the fruit. And the ball in movement, I want you to show me where they have created something. Because God is creative and Satan is destructive. And all I see in the ball in movement is destruction. And I made the, the statement again as we're examining this. Uh, last week I said, you know, I'm grateful for slavery. Because it brought me here. That I, I wouldn't have been here had it not been for the Atlantic slave trade. And yet here I am. And now I understand the gospel and I'm part of the first fruits of Israel. And when my ancestors are resurrected, I have the opportunity to teach them and bring them into the family of God. Uh, I was castigated for that. What, what, what a fool I am to be grateful for slavery. That I could have been in Africa, and there's lots of Christians in Africa. But well, right there, we've got to ask, what kind of Christians are in Africa? And who brought that version of Christianity to Africa? Because the Christianity that emerged from Africa was stamped out by Islam when the Arabs came and just went in and just slaughtered the Middle East and North Africa. Because Egypt used to be the center of Christianity. And they just slaughtered and burned all the libraries. And so Christianity was, was overtaken by Islam. And it is America and Britain with missionaries that took Christianity into Africa. And so if I was in Africa, I don't know what kind of Christian. I don't know if I would be in the first fruits harvest of Israel. And so the fact that we think that all Christians, all Christians are, are, are in, the, in the first fruits harvest, there's a problem right there. So the Bible says, all things work together for good to them who love God and are called according to his purpose. Therefore, those of us who love God and are called according to his purpose, we should not be bitter. A Christian should not be a bitter person. That we understand our suffering, we understand our shattering. We understand that God doesn't receive sons without scourging them. We understand that. And we also understand that everything is blended together to work for our good. So let's go and examine now Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, the calling card for the social justice warriors within the church or within churches because it's not just our church. And let's pick it up at Proverbs 30, verse 33. He says, Surely the churning of milk brings forth butter, and the wringing of the nose brings forth blood. So the forcing of wrath brings forth strife. So that's, I just wanted to pick that up just to highlight, this is what the ball and movement is all about. 
that the same way that you churn milk and you get butter, if you wring the nose, you're going to bring forth blood. And if you force wrath, you're going to bring forth strife. So the Baalim movement has no good fruit. It only has strife and blood and destruction because that's the agenda. That's the Marxist ploy. So let's go now to the context. Proverbs 31, verse 1. Notice, and Pastor Murray actually raised this when he addressed this in his sermon. The words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. Oh, so Proverbs 31 is the instruction of, the, and we believe this to be King Solomon. His mother, Bathsheba, is instructing him as he's taking the throne. So this is the instruction of the king's mother. And as you read the kings, you see the mother can have a tremendous influence over the king's reign. So that's the context. She's instructing the king. What, my son... And what the son of my womb, and what the son of my vows. Now, just very quickly, in Titus 2, hold, hold your place in verse, uh, Proverbs 31, but in Titus 2, and this is my, my plea to the women among us, because it's a lot of young women, a lot of university-educated women, and, and young men as well, but it's the university system and the Frankfurt School influence of that system that has hijacked the thinking of our young people. So Titus says, three of chapter two, the aged women likewise that they be in behavior as becomes holiness, so be like Bathsheba, not false accusers. Don't be careful what you accuse people of. God doesn't like that. And he says in another place that every vain word we will have to give an account for. And if you look up that word, the meaning, every injurious word. So when we start throwing out false accusations, and injuring people's character. God says, I'm going to hold you to account for that. So, so the Christian women should not be false accusers. Not given to much wine. Teachers of good things. They teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. Right there we're at crossroads with Balaam. Because Balaam says, we need to destroy the nuclear family. We need to drop a neutron bomb on the nuclear family. And we need to let the village raise the family. We need to take children away from their parents. And the children belong to the state. And what the scriptures say for the aged women, don't go along with that. Teach your children and prepare your children to be homemakers, to value the home. And I can tell you again, I read the stats. Check, 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 check. Praise God, I, there's one that I didn't meet. But check, 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 check. And given time, I would have met them all. The fatherless home is, is, is Satan's den. There but for the grace of God go I. If we're going to address the situation of black people and the situation we're in, we have everything we need. The system is colorblind. If we can just return to strong families with strong character. I look at my wife's family. Her parents have been married for 67 years. And there's just this stability in the whole family because the patriarch has been there for 67 years. And I compare that to my nuclear family, which was shattered, and it's just turmoil. And then I compare that to my family and my kids and the stability that they have. And when I see all these kids looting and rioting and taking what belongs to others, my children would never behave this way because of the role of the father 
And surely as Christians, we understand that. So if you're an aged woman, you actually have, you have a biblical responsibility to teach against the Baalim movement. To be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. So what Baalim is doing is causing the word of God to be blasphemed. We need to do the opposite of Baalim. Back to Proverbs 31, verse 3. And it's funny how they won't quote this one. Give not your strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroys kings. Balaam wants free-for-all. That's what Marxists want. Here, Solomon's mother is warning him, don't go into fornication and adultery, which, of course, we saw he didn't do that, and he destroyed his, his kingship. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor princes strong drink. So you should not come under this strong influence in mind-altering states. Lest they drink, and notice this verse 5. Why should they not allow their minds to be altered, get into this drunken stupor? Lest they drink and forget the law. Balaam wants lawlessness. The true Christian adheres to the Torah. The true Christian understands that Christ was Torah compliant his whole life. And we must be Torah compliant and we must preach Torah. Lest they drink and forget. So whatever we're pursuing, it, it can't support lawlessness. Oh, let's let all the criminals out of jail. You know, if you violate um, the COVID-19 pandemic and try to open your small business so you can put bread on the table, we'll throw you in jail. But if, if we have people responsible for violent crime, we need to release them because we want lawlessness. No, don't forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. So again, that, that, that balance, we're not going to allow double standards. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish. So be, be comfort somebody who is going to be executed, let's say. Don't, don't um, harm them any further. Comfort them. And wine unto those that be of heavy heart. So as the king, have a compassionate way of ruling. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. So be compassionate. So now we come to verse 8 in context. These are instructions of Bathsheba to her son as he takes the throne. Open your mouth for the dumb in the cause of all such as are appointed to destruction. So, so be careful how you rule and don't oppress and stand up. You saw when the women, uh, woman comes and um, the prostitute wants to kill her baby. And Solomon's wisdom says, no, I'm going I'm to get to the heart of this because I'm not going to support cruelty and oppression. Open your mouth, judge righteously. And so he judged righteously. And plead the cause of the poor and needy. So it doesn't matter. Don't be the type of king that takes bribes and that only is affected by the rich and famous. Treat everybody well. And that's, you know, I, I, when I see people bow and scrape, you know, when I, when I would go into these boardrooms and meet with CEOs, I was an equal. I, I, have, I had nothing. They were wealthy. But I stood man to man. I looked them in the eye. And, and what I look at is, how do you treat the janitor? And I see people, you know, oh, it's the CEO. Big company, CEO. And they bow and they scrape. 
And that same person, when the janitor goes by or, or a waiter or waitress, treat them like garbage. Okay, you're, you're a broken soul because we're all human beings and most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And a lot of our young men, we need to teach them how to shake hands, how to look somebody in the eye. We can't have young men who are afraid of people, afraid to look up. And then when they can't get anywhere, we say racism. We've got a, the system is the system. And as I said, it's colorblind. Let's fix ourselves. Let's fix our families. Let's fix our young people. Let's build Christian character, and doors will fly open. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. And then he goes on, who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies. Again, if we follow Proverbs 31 through, it's all about the family and the king ruling in a way that is virtuous and understanding the importance of family. So the, the people who support Balaam and try to pull out, and it's really Marxists, it's, it's mischief makers that scour the scriptures and try to pull out scriptures to show support for socialism. And then people who are not biblically sound jump on these scriptures and say, yes, but we, we are students of the Bible. And we read the Bible in context. And so you cannot pull out that, that, that scripture and see that, oh, this is the way it goes. So the, the, the Proverbs 31 woman now, and she's warning him, don't give your way to loose women. Look for a Christian woman. And we need to build Christian women. We need to put Christian women out so that when they cross the altar, the husband can, wow, I'm marrying a virgin. And 30, 40 years later, this woman saved herself for me, and I'm special to her. And this builds this bond. You know, we don't be putting people that just sleep with her. This is, if you read uh, Brave New World, this is the Marxist ide- ideology, loose sexually, which is part of the worship of Baal. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and evil all the days of her life. This is the way the Christian woman, coming, growing up in a Christian household, thinks. So Proverbs 31, verse 8 and 9, this is not our job description. Don't get distracted by Proverbs 31, 8. We're not kings yet. We're going to be kings. It's good to be aware of how to be a righteous king. But we have a very clear job description right now, for the time right now. And that's in John 15. John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. Fruit takes effort, and fruit takes time. So he's, evalu- he's giving us time, and he's giving us opportunity, and he's evaluating. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So yes, we have to suffer. But then through that suffering, it works to our favor, and we bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Here's the job description for now. Don't get distracted trying to save a broken world. What does the scripture say? Evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. The world that we live in is going, is going from bad to worse. People who've been, ask people who've been around uh, you know, 80, eight, eight decades and ask them, have you ever seen anything like this? And they'll tell you, we've never seen anything like this. And, and they think, you know, it's got to get better. No, we have not seen anything yet. And I'm concerned that Christians don't understand how quickly 
this world is going to fall apart. And they're trying to hold on to things. And they want things. We have to be, you know, what did Paul say? I've learned how to abound, and I've also learned how to be, how to abase, how to be abased. And in all, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. So I can be, I can be wealthy, and I can be dirt poor, and my character doesn't change, and I can be stable and committed, eyes on the prize, as Deacon Jan said. Here's the job description: abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So if you, if you subscribe to an agenda that is not Christ's, you won't be able to do anything. And, and Christ will shatter you and shatter me in order to rebuild us in a way that we don't believe in self-reliance. We, 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 we rely on him, that we have to be attached to him to bear fruit, and our job description is to bear fruit. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch. How can we say we abide in Christ if we support a movement that is antithetical to Christ? If we support a movement that will cause harm to a brother or sister in Christ simply because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time and they had the wrong skin color. And we support that. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. The stakes could not be higher. There are people in the body who do not abide. They don't endure to the end. There's a seduction that takes them out. And Christ says, I will gather them, and I personally will burn them in the fire, even though they were attached to me at one point. If, however, you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you, so that we can do this work. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. So again, are your social media posts, are they bearing fruit? Are people reading your posts and saying, you know, I, I need to take a second look at Jesus Christ. I, I, I didn't know this. I didn't know the Bible says that. Or are they reading your post and becoming angry and wanting to riot and hurt somebody? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue you in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you. And this is the key. I, I don't think we grasp how bad things are going to get. What, what's the, the saying? I think it was Margaret Thatcher who said, the problem with socialism is at some point you run out of other people's money. So it, it all sounds so great. We're going to distribute the wealth equally. But if you don't have an engine for creating wealth, at some point the wealth runs out. And communists will tell you that socialism is a stepping stone to communism. It's sort of the soft entry to communism. And I don't know who said it, but it, was, it couples with this. So socialism, the problem with it is at some point you run out of other people's money. And the problem with communism is they have nothing and they want to share it with you. <laughs> so let's, we're going to run out of other people's money and then there's nothing and want to share that misery with you. But the rhetoric sounded so great. 
These things I've spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you. So no matter what happens, we know how to abound, but we also know how to be abased and to still have the joy of the Lord because of what we understand, what we're a part of, and that your joy might be full. People are going to be losing their minds, brethren, because they have no hope. The news is so depressing. It's like they turn on the news and it's just constant depression. And then they read your social media and you add to their anxiety. Instead of seeing like, wait a minute. Okay, it is going to get worse, but then it's going to get better. And this is real. This makes sense. Flawed man cannot execute communism properly. They never have. And we just keep waiting for the next dictator who's going to do it properly. It's not going to happen. Only Christ can bring in utopia. And until then, we need systems with checks and balances. But Christ is giving us something that through all of this, our joy might be full, and we can share that joy with others. Now, here's the job description, brethren. This is my commandment. Don't go off trying to find some obscure scripture to justify vanity. I want to support black people. Why? Because I'm black. It's not like, you know, I want to support the people in Hong Kong. Why? Because I believe in freedom. And I believe in the human right to freedom. But you're not from Hong Kong. I know, but I, I believe in this. Because the scripture says, look not every man on his own things, but on the things of others. But here's the commandment. This is the job description. This is what we have to do to endure to the end. This is my commandment, that you love one another the way I've loved you. He gave his life for us. So I'm telling you, brethren, that this thing is running out of control. And it's going to get worse. And people, for no other reason than that they were in the wrong place, at the wrong time, with the wrong skin color, are going to get hurt, if not killed. And some of those people, brethren, will be of the body of God. I don't know what else I can say. Think on these things. We're in this place now where Christ says, I'm commanding you to love one another. And what we're saying is, because of social justice, I'm going to love the world because I'm a Christian. I have to love the world. And I'm going to hate my brother. I'm going to hate my pastor. But I'm going to love the world because Christianity is about love. The command is that you, we love one another through this. This thing is going to get all, it's going to be a nightmare. And then people are going to look. And I'm going to invite my family to, to, to services or friends to services. And they're going to scratch their head. And they're going to say, Adrian, can I talk to you? I say, yeah, sure, yeah, what? Um, I don't get it. What, what don't you get? Well, there's so much racial unrest all around us. And when I come to your church, it's almost like races don't even exist. You guys just seem to really love each other. What, what's going on? That's the way it should be, brethren. It shouldn't be that they see all this racial unrest in the world, and then they come into our congregation and they have a side conversation with one of us and they hear bitterness and they hear, yes, white man privilege, white privilege and, 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 and black pride and, and they just hear the very same things they hear in the world. Christ says, by this, 
shall all men know that you're my disciple. So this is a different gospel. And, and so the first one I said to, you know, fundamentally, and, and it's like Paul saying to the Galatians, I marvel. What happened? I marvel. Like just the other day we were talking about the gospel, and now I come back and I marvel at how quickly you've been removed to another gospel, which in fact is not good news. Balaam is not good news. It's horrendous news. It's a nightmare. And yet some of us have been moved over to this just because of the wording, social justice. So one of the fundamental differences between the Balaam gospel and scripture is the source of suffering. It's not from the unequal distribution of wealth. It's from the sinful nature. And in fact, God himself is the source of the unequal distribution of wealth. He says of Israel, I will multiply your wealth exceedingly, and I will put you up above the Gentile nations. And then he says of Esau, you know what? They're going to be known as the people against whom the Lord has indignation forever. And even though they say they'll try to rebuild, I, God, will personally take their wealth away from them. I will destroy anything, any, any effort that they try to, to equalize the distribution of wealth, I'm going to personally remove it from them. So this concept of the equal distribution of wealth, which is really covetousness, it doesn't come from scripture. In fact, you, you look at Israel, the, the, the man, and he was under oppression from Laban, his own family. And no matter what Laban did over the 14 years, God just kept increasing Laban. So we don't need government. We make the government bigger so that we can have more. We need handouts. No, make the government smaller and just get out of our way. And let us have our families and our dignity and our work ethic and our God. And just as he blessed Jacob, no matter what Laban tried, God just kept increasing Jacob's wealth. These socialists are atheists, and their gospel excludes God. So how can a Christian embrace socialism? The second very significant difference between the Baalim gospel and scripture is the unpardonable sin. According to Baalim, white privilege is the unpardonable sin. Because you are white, you are evil. You are racist. It it makes me so angry. And my brother hasn't shared with me who said it. But my brother Murray has been accused of being racist. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Who, who would have the nerve? Who would have the nerve? Who would have the nerve? Are you kidding me? Yeah, he, he's, he, he's racist. He can't help it because he's white. He was born with white privilege, therefore he's racist. In the church. Are you kidding me? Do you know these men? Do you know Deacon Jan? Do you know Brother Do you really know them? And if you do, how dare you? And if you don't, how dare you? So the unpardonable sin to the Baalim doctrine is being white. You can never be forgiven. And you caused um, racism. You've caused slavery. You can never be forgiven. And there's no sense that, hey, you know what? These flaws are human flaws. 
and they exist in every race. Paul would describe Balaam. When you say that, I'm going to cancel you because of something your parents did or grandparents or something you did 10 years ago. And you can never be forgiven because racism is the ultimate sin. If we find racism anywhere, we cancel you because that's the unpardonable sin. You know what Paul would call these people? He would call them enemies of the cross. And if you support them, you have become an enemy of the cross. Because the sacrifice of Christ says, apart from blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, every sin will be forgiven. Significant difference again is that your identity, according to the Balaam or Marxist doctrine, is only in the collective. You only exist in the group you've been assigned to. What you think as an individual and what you do as an individual and your uniqueness as an individual, we don't care. We only care about you to the extent that you belong to a collective. That's not what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches that each person in the body is uniquely endowed to edify the body. You know, if you haven't read Animal Farm, George Orwell's Animal Farm, it's a good time to read it up. It's a sh- read, read that book. It's a short read. But let me just tell you in a nutshell. It starts out four legs good, because those are animals, two legs bad, those are humans. And it ends up four legs good, two legs better, because the, the same animals that take over end up acting just the way the humans did. And that's what we see over and over and over and over again. In, in Luke 12 and verse 13, because this is all about envy, and covetousness. In Luke 12 and verse 13, one of them comes to Christ and he says, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, Beware, and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consists not in the abundance of things which he possesses. So you look at people and they have incredible wealth, so what? Who cares? Who cares? We have a relationship with God, and he looks after us. In Luke 9 and verse 54, when his disciples James and John saw what the people who in Samaria, uh, what they, the Jews were doing to the people, uh, Christ wanted to go through their area, but he wouldn't, he would, they wouldn't allow him. They said, Lord, will you that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? So they think it's spiritual to do this. But he turned and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are. And for those of us supporting Baalim, I think Christ would say the same thing to us. You don't know what manner of spirit you are. The destruction that Baalim is wreaking upon the West. And exclusively the West. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So whatever you're thinking to, to, to try to destroy people, that's not what, uh, that's not what, what I'm about. And so what, what Balaam is up to is not what God is about. Now, in 1 Timothy 6, in verse 1, let's go there. And again, take these scriptures, study them. Study other scriptures, search the scriptures to see if these things are so. 
and then come. Let's reason together. Or as my Rastafarian elders would say, come, make we reason. Sit down. Let's explore this together. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 1, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor. Huh. That does not sound like Balaam at all. So if you're an employee, whoever you're working for, Christ says, count your own masters worthy of all honor. As a sales, young salesman, when I went into some of these boardrooms, and I could feel the racism. It, was, it wasn't hidden. It was clear. I didn't think like, oh, woe is me. I just sat there and I thought, how do I help this person? What do they really need? And how can I help them get what they really need? How can I help them? And, you know, Joseph said, you meant it for evil. You meant it to me for evil. But God meant it for me for good. So I had to figure out how to sell and be successful in a racist context. And everything that I figured out, today I have a consulting company that I go around the world showing people how to be useful, how to be valuable, how to sell in a way that creates real value. And they really want it now because social media. Everything is so transparent and, there, and so much choice and internet. They can choose, customers can choose anybody. So now I say, Adrian, how quickly can you get here and teach us what you know? Well, what I know is unique because it came from my experience as the man who fell to earth trying to function in a racist society and trying to count my masters worthy of all honor. Every customer is my master, is my boss. So how do we as employees, as Christian employees, just commit to creating value for the people we work for rather than trying to tear down their businesses and take their wealth from them? Count their own masters worthy of all honor that the name of God and his doctrine blaspheme. There it is again. So we've got to teach our, young, our older women, have to teach our young ladies how to care for family, that the name of God be not blasphemed. And employees need to work for their employers in such a way that the word of God is not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them. Because they are brethren. It doesn't matter what their skin color is. In fact, the whole notion of race, so you who believe in Balaam, the whole notion of race is not in the Bible. And, and the worldwide church of God and, and some of the offshoots who positioned Israel as racial, that's not from the Bible. You cannot find race in the Bible. You cannot find social justice in the Bible, and you cannot find race in the Bible. God is a God of family, and God evaluates and blesses by family. And Israel is a family, and Esau is a family. So if you're fighting for race and trying to use the Bible... You got duped. It's all about seed. You do your DNA, and you, you'd be surprised on my DNA. You'd be surprised where my blood, my DNA comes from. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they're brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved. So there's the discerning. So there's the master that's not in the faith, and then there's the master that is in the faith, and there's a discernment. 
and they're partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. I'm, I'm not going to teach you to support Balaam. The Bible doesn't tell me to teach you that. It tells me to teach you these things and to exhort you around these things. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, uh-oh, this sounds like a warning coming up. So this is what we should be teaching. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I gave you the red letters of the word Jesus, were commanded to love one another, not hate one another, and to love one another the way he loved us, and to love one another in such a way that people in the world say, those really are the disciples of Christ. That's what I gave you. Even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, not lawlessness, then he is proud, knowing nothing. Notice the word proud. That's the fatal flaw. You know, that's why Job had to be shattered. That's why I had to be shattered. That's why Israel has to be shattered. That's why the first fruits of Israel has to be shattered. That's why we keep the days of unleavened bread. Because pride is the sin of the devil. And it so easily afflicts us. But now we're hearing if you are teaching against good doctrine, it's because you're proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof comes envy. Ah, so social justice and it comes envy. Remember what Solomon said, that when somebody dies, their love and their hate and their envy dies with them. So human beings are two-thirds rotten and one-third love. And Christ says, you've got to build the love and overcome the envy. Socialism is envy. And from this comes envy, strife, railings, evil surmising. Oh, this is all Balaam. This is the fruit of Balaam. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. This is what they think. Everything is evaluated based on economic wealth, and we've got to spread the economic wealth, supposing that gain is godliness. That, you know, when Balaam takes over, they still have the human condition. They still have the human heart. And somehow we think that, oh, the, the rhetoric is so great that if we can just equalize the wealth, that that's godliness when it's lawlessness. From such, withdraw yourself. And that's something, this is a harsh reality, that we have brethren who are wholehearted and prioritizing this calling. Then we have brethren who are stumbling, but they really are sincere, but Satan is subtle. And then we have tares among us. And Paul is saying, like, you've got to discern, and sometimes you have to withdraw yourself. So we're trying to paper over cracks, but Christ says, let the wheat and tares grow together. So you can't pretend that the cracks aren't there. But godliness, listen to this, brethren. This is the opposite of the Balaam doctrine. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So we're content, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. So you come, with me with, you come to me with this doctrine that I must have what everybody else has. You know what? No thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm good. And having food, listen to the Christian, the Christian perspective. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Do you have food, brethren? Do you have clothing? If we live in the West, we live like kings. We live like kings to most of humanity alive today and who's ever existed ever. 
So the Christian cannot be seduced into socialism. Because, first of all, if, you, if man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. We don't want handouts. And I'm just so grateful to my mother. She, she, again, my great-grandmother was a very strict Christian. My grandmother was a very devout Christian. My mother was not Christian, but she had Christian principles. And when they were insisting that she stay on welfare, it was no, there, there was no discussion. There was nothing they could do to convince her. She had to get off welfare. And, and in thinking about it, I think because of the Christian influence, the man that doesn't work shouldn't eat. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Let's be content. But they that will be rich, and again, I'm being accused of being a lover of money, but those that are looking at the wealth of others and saying we need to spread this around, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. This is talking of brethren, not just men in the world. For the love of many, and this is, this is the, the, the context now of this scripture, for the love of money is the root of all evil. And believe me, brethren, I've been with some wealthy people, and I was accused again of saying, you know, you have shared that story before. Uh, I, all my sermons are recorded. So if I've shared it before and I've forgotten, I apologize, but I'm sure I didn't share it in the detail that I did last week because it just didn't mean anything to me until I see what's going on. And I, w- I want to say, like, first of all, the system is colorblind. How do you go from the ghetto and the, 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 the untouchables, people who don't even have identity, people, the, the government doesn't even know these people exist. How do you go from there to flying in private jets with billionaires? And it's not that oh, I, was with a bill- I was with billionaires. That wasn't the point. The point was the system is colorblind. The other point that I wanted to make as well is I got to see these people up close and personal. And what I've seen is some of the worst people I've ever met were these people with money. Horrible character. But you know what? Some of the worst people I've ever met and who tried to damage me the most were some of the poorest people I've ever met. Worst people I've ever met have been black. Worst people I've ever met have been white. Some of the people with the noblest character, they didn't, even have, they didn't even have food for breakfast. And they had the highest character. And some of the people I've met with the highest character have been very, very wealthy. And I'm thinking right now of an Italian family that's very, very wealthy. And they've got their children and their grandchildren. I got to see them up close. And boy, did they have great character. And I'll tell you that there's not a single person in that family that would speak to a stray dog the way members of the the body of Christ speak to me as a pastor. How do we reconcile that? So in my journeys and all the different circles that I've traveled in and got to see people up close and personally and, and from so many different dimensions, most people lead a very narrow or live in a very narrow lane. God has blessed me to be among multiple types of people and to operate completely outside of society and then be put right back into it. And my conclusion at the end of all of this, people are people. And I, I evaluate people on an individual basis. And I want to be evaluated. On an, I don't want somebody looking at me and because I'm black to think I, you know, I hate Christ and I want to chop people's heads off just because I'm black and most people that they've met we're black. I want people to get to know me and judge me by the content of my character, not by the color of my skin. 
And I want that. I want to live in a world like that. For the love of money is the root of all evil. It's, the, it's not money. It's the love of money. Paul says, I know how to abound, but I also know how to be abased. Why? Because I don't love money. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, that's what socialism causes us to do, to look at what other people have, they have erred from the faith. So now this Baalim doctrine sounds good, social justice. But because of that, we've erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O oh man of God, flee these things. And that was my point. And if I, if I come across harshly, it's because I see the danger. We have no idea what's coming, brethren. It's just around the corner. It's going to be horrendous. And it's already unraveling. And if we're already hankering after things, we're, we're going to leave the faith. But you, O oh man, O oh woman of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness. If you have food... You have raiment, you're good. Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Second Timothy three verse one. This is really critical now. Again, if I'm hard, if I seem intense, this is real, and the stakes don't get higher. Second Timothy three verse one. This know also that in the last days, or this is it now. You know we have the history. Why? So that these things can be examples to us upon whom the ends of the world have come. So it's what, what we see anciently in, in the judges, for example. We need to study that so that we can understand what's going on today. Upon whom the ends of the world have come. And so, again, you talk to people in their 80s or 90s and ask them what's their perception of the world. And they will tell you they've never seen anything like this. And trust me, here we are, July 4th, uh, Independence Day for America. This should be a great celebration for all free people all around the world. Greatest nation ever. I didn't say perfect. Greatest. Nothing like it. Built on the concept of the, the rights of the human being made in God's image. And instead of celebrating, we're tearing down statues. We're erasing history. We're demoralizing Americans. And we want to destroy the system. And once America falls, boy, oh boy. Because the people behind it, these Marxists, they're going to usher in perilous times. And you know, what's the saying? The future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. So we can get glimpses. Look at, look at what happened in Chaz. Study that. Because that's a glimpse of the lawlessness that's coming. That in the last days, perilous times shall come. And perilous for the Christian. Why? For men, and we could even insert brethren, shall be lovers of their own selves. I don't care about Hong Kong. I care about black people. I've actually had family members say that to me. I have a family member uh, over in the UK who, who said to me, I don't care about people. I care about black people. I only, care about what ha only talk to me about what happens to black people. That can't be in the church. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, there's the socialism again, boasters, there's the Black Lives Matter, proud, there's Satan's sin, blasphemers, again, if we're not, we're going against family, God says the word of God should not be blasphemed, if we're going against being decent employees and working for our masters, our employees, our customers, that the word of God would be blasphemed. Disobedient to parents, there it is, those programs that destroy the family and remove the father. Unthankful, 
we don't understand that everything works together for good. And we should be grateful for all our suffering because it's nothing compared to what's going to be revealed in us. Unholy. Without natural affection. Tell people what they're doing to babies. What, what pedophiles are doing. No, the only sin we care about is racism. That's the only sin that matters. Truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness. This is what tells us. This is talking about brethren among us. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such, turn away. So there really is a problem. And now we come to the the killer scripture to destroy the Balaam movement. This is it. This destroys the Balaam doctrine. Ezekiel 18. You ready? Get ready. We're going to drop a neutron bomb on the Balaam doctrine of original sin being whiteness and the only, the only sin that matters being racism and that we have to destroy white people because of what they did to our ancestors, what their ancestors did to our ancestors. Get ready. Ezekiel 18, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean that you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. What do you mean by saying God is furious? Why do you say that? Oh, you know what? The fathers made a mistake. This is what, this is what Israel is saying. Our fathers made a mistake, and now we're suffering. We're, we're being punished. Listen to God. As I live. This, this, this matters to God. This is an accusation that God did not take lightly. He swe- As I live, says the Lord, you shall not have occasion anymore to use this proverb in Israel. What Balaam is doing under the influence of Satan is giving people occasion to use this proverb again. That our ancestors made mistakes and now we're being punished for it. God says, as I live, you will not have occasion to use that proverb in Israel. If you support Balaam, you're working against God. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the father, so also the soul of the son is mine. The soul that sins, it shall die. God doesn't care what your parents did. God doesn't care what your ancestors did. He cares what you do. And if you sin and stay in sin, you will die. But if a man, listen, you're going to come and you're going to call Pastor Murray racist. You're going to call Deacon Jan racist. You're going to call our white brethren racist. The unpardonable sin, which is really a death sentence. When you call somebody racist and say white privilege, what you're really doing is endorsing the Balim doctrine that these people must be put to death. They must be impoverished, they must be humiliated, and they must be killed. That's what you're doing. Christ says, but if a man be just and do that which is lawful, never depart from the law, and right, and has not eaten upon the mountains, neither, that's getting into idolatry, neither has lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, neither has defiled his neighbor's wife, again, the family, protecting that, neither has come near to a menstruous woman and has not oppressed any. So maybe his ancestors did, his father did it, but he didn't do it. And has not oppressed any, but has restored to the debtor his pledge and has spoiled none by violence, has given his bread to the hungry and has covered the naked with a garment. 
He has not given forth upon usury, neither has taken any increase, that has withdrawn his hand from iniquity, has executed true judgment between man and man, has walked in my statutes, again the law. No place for lawlessness. No place for lawlessness. Stop it. Has walked in my statutes and has kept my judgments to deal truly. He is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord God. Balaam says the exact opposite. He will be canceled. Why will he be canceled? White privilege. What is white privilege? Well, because he's white, he doesn't understand that he's racist, and that's just, that's just built into him. So we don't want to hear him. We just want to cancel him. But you don't know him. I don't have to know him. He's white. That is the opposite of God's perspective. So if you're supporting Balaam, you better, better study the Bible and see if you're truly in line with the Bible or if you're antithetical to the Bible. So justice, the Bible doesn't talk about social justice. There's no such thing. The Bible speaks of justice. And I heard someone say, the minute you have to put an adjective with justice, it means you have an agenda. As far as God is concerned, he wants people to be just. And he's coming to deliver and usher in justice. But Marxists speak of social justice because they're all about cultural Marxism. So I hope my position on these three questions, and they were fair questions, the third one is a fantastic question. But I'm, <laughs> if you listen to the sermon again, in no way did I condemn George Floyd. I just said, let's be careful. In fact, please, if you haven't read uh, Edward Bernays' Propaganda, it's a very important read because in, this book was written in 1928 and he taught governments how to propagandize, how to manipulate the masses. And he described it as the invisible hand, how to control people invisibly. And what he, and again, I explained the other day that you get people to belong to a group and then feel that the group is being attacked. And what he said is there's the, the way an individual's mind works is one way, but the group mind works a completely different way. Individuals will think and think logically and reason, but the group cannot think logically. The group mind thinks in impulses and emotionally. So if you can get people into a group, the hive mind, then you can manipulate them. And he talked about the power of language. And he gave the example in the UK after the war. They set up a hospital. And it was just to treat the severely wounded and get them going again. And people were furious. They were so upset. They were going to riot. This is no way for a hospital to treat its patients. And then he said, change the name. Don't call it a hospital. Call it an evacuation clinic. And just by calling it an evacuation clinic, people's expectations changed. So they went in, and they came out, and they weren't properly finished treating, but it, it's not a hospital, it's an evacuation clinic. And so this is how he says how the group mind works. You need to use language and phrases. So the war on poverty. If you're against the war on poverty, you must be evil. So let's, let's embrace the war, of poverty, uh, war on poverty and destroy families and spend $15 trillion, and you've done nothing. The, the needle hasn't moved. Black lives matter. How could you be? Are you saying black lives don't matter? No, I'm saying all, you're, saying all, you're saying black lives don't matter. Black, matters, you know, black lives matter too. Black. 
it, it's a phrase. Who can argue? If I say black lives, so, so if we take that phrase, this is the position, black lives matter, then anybody who's opposed to that position is evil. Well, I'm not talking about the phrase, black lives matter. I'm talking about the organization. The organization Black Lives Matter. And, and I, I, I did talk about this in the Bible study. One of the founders here, it says very clearly that the last sentence here, she developed an interest in the Nigerian religious tradition of Ifa, and that's of the Yobora people, incorporating its rituals into political protest events. So she is all about uh, this voodoo religion, and people who are getting involved in this um, uh, movement and who don't even understand these people are evil people. And they worship Baal. And when you get involved in their um, events, you don't know what you're getting involved in. So I want you to look at what Baalim is leading to. And this is why I'm warning you. And this is viewer discretion is advised. This is what Balaam is all about. So if you look at this now, this is where we're heading. When they say black lives matter, what they really mean is only black lives matter. This is awful, brethren. This is awful. So you'll just see here where we're heading with with this uh, Balin movement where people can just be walking on the street and knocked down. So racism, yeah, there's racism. As long as you have human beings who are flawed, you're going to have racism. Social justice, it's a ploy. It's a Marxist ploy. I want you to understand, I don't know if you've heard of this, um, I was just going to show you a, a, some stats around slavery, what's happening today, in the world today, and people are silent. They won't fight against slavery, unless it's in the West. And the Arab slave trade was 20 times worse in magnitude and severity in the Atlantic slave trade. And it, it lasted 1,400 years and it's still going. And black people are silent. And Black Lives Matter is silent because it's all designed to bring down the West. But I want to uh, share with you this parasite. I don't know if you've heard of this parasite, but it's, a very, it's very critical that we understand this parasite. Cat poop parasite controls minds early and permanently study finds a parasite that changes the brains of rats and mice so that they are attracted to cats and cat urine seems to work its magic almost right away and continues to control the brain even after it's gone. The mind-controlling parasite called Toxoplasma gondii might make permanent changes in the brain function as soon as it gets in there, the research reports. So this parasite uses the power of sexual attraction to trick rats into becoming cat food. So something happens to them where this parasite gets in their brain, and when they smell the urine of a cat, 
they get attracted, they get aroused, and they go after it. Well, I want to say by analogy, brethren, that Black Lives Matter, the organization, is the urine of George Soros. It's the urine of the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers. And they have packaged it in such a way that black people are attracted to the very thing that is going to destroy us. We need to shake it off. Don't allow that parasite into the brain. So Job was yanked out of the ordinary world. And he had to go through this extraordinary world of suffering in order to be purified. Job is a symbol of Israel. And we are first fruits Israel. We cannot have pride and think we're going into the kingdom. So let him who glories, glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Now Job, when he came out of that extraordinary world to come into this new world, there's, there was a condition. Job 42, verse 5. He says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And it was so, listen, that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you. So there was this big argument. And he says, my wrath is kindled against you. <clears throat> and sorry, I just wanted to just again just share with you what's going on. When you say you support Black Lives Matter, are you sure? This is where it's heading. At first they make it sound like, oh, all lives matter. But what they really mean is, white lives don't matter. And so, brethren, I can only warn you with the, the strictest way. Don't get involved in this. It's horrible. It's disgusting. So there's this argument and contention about what's going on. And everybody has their arguments. But then God finally speaks. And he says, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job has. So are you speaking on your social media posts and among brethren the things of God that are right? Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that you have not spoken to me the things which is right, like my servant Job. So Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, they did this as the Lord commanded them. But notice this is the verse that I really want you to focus on, verse 10. And the Lord ended the oppression of Job when he prayed for his friends. So they were against him the whole time. But there's no place for bitterness among God's people. So if you have bitterness that's racially motivated, and it's amazing to me, I, I didn't know there was this bitterness, this racial bitterness. But if you have that, you're not going to be in the kingdom of God. I'll just say it frankly. First of all, race is not a concept in the Bible. And secondly, there's no place for bitterness. So everything that Job went through, it was only when he prayed for his friends, that's when the Lord ended, brought him out of that extraordinary world. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So then he could come into the new world. So think about that, brethren. And again, when I began this, this series, I asked you, 
or I said, let's begin a conversation. Murray said the same thing. Let's talk. And he, was, he made himself available to talk. And you know what? For those who support Balin, I've had one real conversation. I've had one with real questions. And I think maybe Pastor Murray um, has had more questions. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure if he's had any real conversations. But we're open. And if you want to have a recorded roundtable discussion on this matter where we reason, come make we reason, and we explore and advance our understanding from the Bible in love, supporting one another because we want to help each other. We don't hate each other. We love each other. As the Lord loves us, so we love each other. And we want to help each other advance our understanding. So let's come with data. Let's come with statistics. But let's most of all open the Bible. So we've been hacked. There's division in the body. Let's not pretend it's not there. And Satan wants to put this parasite in our mind so that we run after the very thing that will destroy us. But these companies, they will go to sites like HackerOne and thank them for hacking them. Not just companies the very Department of Defense, the most powerful defense department in the world, is a customer of HackerOne. And this is a government in this world. We are preparing to be the government in the new world. Let's, let's welcome the hack. Let's thank the hackers. Thank you, Balam, for hacking us. Because you've exposed something that we didn't know was there. And now that, we're, now that we see it, we need to work on it. So again, brethren, I'm going to invite you to conversation. I was going to conclude with a video that just, you know, if you didn't know before, it would just make it really crystal clear what this is. But if you're interested, I'll send you the video. I'm going to conclude with the most powerful warning for us, with this Balin. Now, the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times, that's our time now, and the spirit, it's not hidden. The spirit is not kind of hedging its bet. The spirit is expressing this openly. That in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. That, that's the unfortunate truth. They were in the faith, and as we're about to cross the finish line, they're going to depart from the faith. Giving heed to seducing spirits. So you saw this woman, she's into voodoo. Balaam, the founder of Balaam, is into voodoo. They are admitted trained Marxists, and they're seducing people to support them. And if you support them, you've got to ask yourself, are you in the narrow way or the broad way? Because everybody supports Balaam. Politicians, religious leaders, Hollywood, corporate America, you even have the Pope on your side. When I stand against Balaam, the only people that support me are people who believe the Bible. I, I, I had a meeting with a, a, a white business colleague, and it was a one-hour meeting, and we spent 50 minutes of the hour not arguing, but I was just poking, because he was just like, oh, we've got to get rid of Trump. Uh, we've got to support Black Lives Matter. And I just kept asking him questions, and he wanted to talk. And nobody's ever kind of challenged his thinking, because everybody's so, so easy to just say what everybody else is saying. 
And so we spent 50 minutes, a white man, arguing your cause. And I just spent 50 minutes asking him questions. And then we had 10 minutes for the actual meeting. So you're against these white people, and, and Balin will kill him. But he's for Balin. So everybody's supporting this thing. Are you in the narrow way or the broad way? Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed. That is, paying attention. They're, they're, they're studying it. They're paying attention to it. Christ says, let my word abide in you. Well, there, there is another word that's abiding in them now and animating them. You know, I, I used to worry that there's not enough energy in the church. We're getting older. No, there's a lot of energy in the church. You just have to tap the right vein. And it's amazing, the energy that's in the church. So if we could just tap that for the cause of Jesus, boy, could we do something. The Spirit says expressly, it's not hiding it, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed, paying attention, giving into, seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Balaam is the doctrine of demons. Speaking lies in hypocrisy. So these brethren are not liars, but they are hypocrites. They're repeating lies. They're speaking lies in hypocrisy. So you tell them about slavery. There's 100 million people. There's 100 million human beings that are enslaved right now. You tell them that and they say, well, police are hunting down black people. And you show them the statistics and it's not true. But there's 100 million people that are enslaved right now, being tortured. There are babies being aborted. There are babies being tortured. There are women being raped. It, nothing registers. But you get onto the anything Black Lives Matter says, and they're animated for that. So speaking lies is pseudo-logic, pseudo-logos. It, it's, it's fake logic. And you can, you can pull it apart with, with real logic and real data. So they repeat this pseudo-Marxist logic in hypocrisy. Because we cannot be, it's like what Pastor Murray said, this double standard. Christians don't have double standards. We have one standard, the Lord's standard, and we apply it everywhere, all the time. But they have this double standard. That's okay, but that isn't. So they're repeating the pseudo-logic in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. So they, they see some of the violence and what these Black Lives Matter people are doing, and it's okay. Notice this. Forbidding to marry. That is Marxist ideology. Somehow in the end time, there has to be a doctrine that is globally supported, that brethren will run after, that destroys the family. And commanding to abstain from meats. And so somehow this doctrine is going to combine with an environmental movement. So just Google Black Lives Matter and environmentalism. And we see these movements have come together where you can't eat meat because that's destroying the economy, or sorry, the, the environment. So this, these are doctrines of demons. God has given meat to mankind, made in his image, but these people put the environment, the, the, the worship of Baal puts the environment above human beings. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So... Verse 6 says, if you put the brethren in remembrance of these things, and that's what we're trying to do, brethren, that's all we're trying to do, point you back to the scriptures. You shall be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in 
the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto you have attained. On your own time, look at Romans 13. Study Romans 13. If you want to talk, let's begin with Romans 13 and see how can you reconcile the Baalim movement with Romans 13. So we began asking you to converse with us with a very clear warning. This is, this is salvific. We're giving heed to doctrines of demons. We will be burned in the fire. We will not be in the kingdom. God says, you know, although your sins be crimson red, I'm willing to forgive you. But he says, come now and let us reason together. If you're, if you're part of a group that only thinks in impulses and emotion, how are you going to reason with God? He says, come, you, you individually, come now and reason with me. And then he says, you individually stand before my judgment seat. So you've got to break off from the hive mind, break off from the group mind, the group mentality, so that we can no longer be manipulated so easily. And let's individually, in our prayer closet, go to God, go to Christ, open the Bible, reason with God, and then come and reason with us. And let's help each other. Because I'm telling you, this is just round one. More to come. God bless you, brethren. Forgive me for my personality. I was shaped in the ghetto. I was shaped by men. Malcolm X. Bob Marley. And some very deep-thinking, profound Rastafarians. That's who formed me in those formative years of becoming a man. And so I have a certain personality. And my father was a very intense man. And so my DNA already lends itself to that. Can, can you forbear? Uh, my my personality is not going to change overnight. I think if you get to know me, you'll get to know how much I love you. God bless. Thank you, Pastor Adrian, for that uh, passionate message. It's certainly been a uh, rather heavy five weeks. Um, certainly the five sermons we've put together is, as a package have been heavy. Certainly appreciate uh, your efforts and uh, all the, the work that uh, you have put together in these three uh, very important messages that you gave. And certainly looking forward to uh, reasoning together with with anyone who wants to chat. That is what we must do. Uh, let us now, uh, we'll, we will go to a closing prayer here. I will give the closing prayer. And immediately after the closing prayer, we will close the service with the hymn, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. And uh, hopefully we'll see you here next week. Well, hopefully we'll, uh, our congregation will be back meeting uh, live in person. Uh, uh, that's a week-to-week decision that we'll need to make. But if not, we'll be happy to uh, uh, rejoin with you here next Sabbath at 2.30 here uh, on this network. Uh, so let's now close with prayer and then leaning on the everlasting arms. Father in heaven and to you, Jesus Christ, there with him, we certainly thank you for this opportunity to dig in your scriptures as we have been doing for the last number of weeks. We are grateful as we have heard for the weaknesses in your body that have become apparent so that together we can talk and repair. We thank you for your word that has been preserved for us down through the ages. We thank you 
that it addresses the human condition, the human condition that has been around since our father, our forefather Adam. And we are so grateful that the eternal truths of your word are all that we need. It was all Adam needed. It was all the patriarchs needed. It was all Israel needed. It was all the New Testament church needed. It is all we need. So we thank you for those truths. We ask you to stir up your spirit within your body that we may be passionate about building fruit, about moving towards completion and perfection, about loving each other, and about upholding your standards. Help us all to refocus our passion and refocus our efforts on what you've asked us to do. And we're so grateful for the encouragement of your body, for the strength that we feed off of each other. And we just ask you to, again, stir up your spirit within us to be about your business. We look forward to the return of your son. In the meantime, we are grateful for his sacrifice. We're grateful for your sacrifice. We are grateful to be part of your body. We thank you. We thank you for all those that serve. We thank you for all those that teach. And just be with all of your body. Help us to come to perfection. Help us to put on the white garments. And help us to be ready and make ourselves ready with your help and the help of your Holy Spirit for the return of the bridegroom. Give us strength. Give us boldness. We just pray and lift up all of your people. And we do so with gratefulness, with thanks. In the name of our elder brother, our soon coming king, our redeemer, our Messiah, our Lord of Lords, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Thank you.